Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JMInTheAM.org. And welcome to another Thursday of political talk. And we have a great show in store for you. First of all, we are sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. BeckermanPR.com, and we are pleased to have a great lineup. As I said, we are going to be interviewing congressional candidate Bruce Blakeman, who is running for the Republican nomination in the 4th Congressional District, which is now an open seat being vacated by Carolyn McCarthy, a longtime congresswoman and a champion of gun control. And she's held the seat for quite some time, and Bruce is going to run in a Republican primary and... For that nomination, there are also two on the Democratic side vying for that seat. After that, we're going to give you the latest on Bridgegate. We've got Zach Fink coming back, who has become our resident expert on Chris Christie and all things Chris Christie. And we are going to talk also to Aaron Trudler of TNAC Polar Public Relations, who writes a column uh, for the TNAC Jewish paper and is a close follower of New York and New Jersey politics. Also in between, I believe and I hope we're going to have Phil Rosen on, who is a leader in the Republican Jewish Coalition, who was at the RJC spring meeting with many of the potential presidential candidates on the Republican side. So we're hopefully going to get a little insight into that. And uh, without further ado, go right into it. We got Bruce Blakeman on the line. Bruce was also at the RJC Meeting spring meeting in Las Vegas. So, Bruce, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much, Michael. You, you got one heck of a lineup there. Oh yeah. Well, look, we try and make it exciting. You know, politics is exciting, as I know you know. You've been uh, you've been uh, in it for so long. So let, let's start from the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, you were once upon a time my county legislator, and uh, back back in the old days. And now you've been you've been. You've run a couple times for statewide office, uh, controller, and for U.S. Senate, and now you're looking to go for the congressional seat to represent me. So that's great. I'm really excited. So uh, tell us uh, about why you're running, and you know, you just uh, you know why you want to be in Congress. Well, you know, I've always had an interest in public service. Uh, my father was a legislator who actually represented uh, the community that you live in, Michael, the five towns back in the 60s. And my mother and father were both World War II veterans. My my mother was a member of the, the original Women's Army Corps. And so I got volunteerism, I got public service from my mom and dad, who raised me in Valley Stream. And... Um, I've always had an interest in issues and government and solving people's problems. And this opportunity presented itself, and uh, I'm taking advantage of it. I've been very fortunate. I went before the Republican Screening Committee, and they endorsed me um, unanimously. I was unanimously endorsed by the Conservative Party Screening Committee, and I was also unanimously endorsed by the Independence Party Screening Committee. So... I'm I'm running on three lines and um and it, it's uh it, it's a great opportunity 
to represent the hardworking families of the 4th Congressional District because there's so many important issues, Michael. Number one, the economy. Job creation has been stagnant for the last five years. We need to cut government regulation. We need to reduce the deficit. Too much money is going to the government. Not enough money is going to business to invest in people and technology. And we have to also, um, we have to get to a point where we're really getting on board with the new economy, new technology. We've got to get manufacturing back in the United States. And the other thing is, you know, these two are interrelated, Obamacare and the economy. Obamacare, from a health care standpoint, I believe is the wrong way to go. But more importantly, for the economy and the creation of jobs, it's a job killer. Um, people who have maybe 45 employees who are thinking of expanding to 51, 52, 60 are not going to do it because then they fall under the bureaucratic mess of Obamacare. So Obamacare is a job killer. So I want to go to Washington. I want to do all those things I just outlined, and I want to repeal Obamacare and replace it with something that's workable, that serves people so they don't lose their choice of doctor, so they don't lose their choice of hospital, and so they don't have this burden of a tax on the middle class and a regulation and law that kills jobs. So that, that's pretty much in a nutshell on those issues. But there are other issues that I'm sure we'll get into, like foreign relations, Iran. Those are things that I'm very passionate about and I'm very interested in as well. Absolutely. So, Bruce, the district, once upon a time, when Carolyn McCarthy was elected, she actually was a registered Republican at the time. And the district was have, was Republican, had a Republican enrollment edge. Now the 4th District has a Democrat or Democratic uh, voter enrollment edge which would seem to favor those on the Democratic side. So how do you, how do you surmount that? Uh, is it purely through the unpopularity of Obamacare? No. Um, I think that anybody who runs just uh, on repealing Obamacare um, isn't getting the big picture. As I said, I think the number one issue is the economy and job creation. So they're both important issues. But you have to look, Michael, at the voting patterns of my district. Um, the county executive who is a Republican, Ed Mangano, who just won re-election, won by 15 points in that congressional district. Um, Kate Murray, the Hempstead Town Supervisor, Town of Hempstead comprises approximately 90% of my district. She won with over 30% victory. John McLaughlin did a poll for uh, the Republican National Congressional Conference, they didn't use my name, they didn't use any names, on a generic ballot, Republican versus Democrat, Republican had a plus four in the poll that was taken six weeks ago. So basically, this is a district that I believe is going to go Republican. I'm confident we're going to win it. Um, I've had meetings with the congressional leadership in Washington, they believe that. I met with Speaker Boehner three weeks ago. Speaker Boehner believes that. I've met with, uh, as you mentioned, I was at the Republican Jewish Coalition Spring Conference in Las Vegas. Um, there are people there across the United States who are watching this race and looking at it as a tremendous opportunity for a pickup for the Republican Party. So they estimate that this race is going to cost 
two million dollars, two and a half million dollars or the like. I, you know, maybe that's exaggerated, maybe not. As we both know, it's an expensive media market. Are you confident that the resources are going to be there on a national level, or how's your fundraising going? And how's you know what are your expectations about what what kind of resources you're going to need to take this seat? Well, you know, I haven't put a specific dollar figure on on what I'm anticipating I'll have to raise and spend, um, but suffice it to say, it's going to be in the seven figures, and we're well on our way to uh, to that number. And uh, then, of course, it depends on a lot of um, uh, political action committees, whether they get involved. Now, I can't coordinate with those committees. They have to be completely independent. So um, they may come in like they did in Florida on both sides, uh, in the Florida race and the one that uh, Jolly won in right, the special the, election a couple of weeks election. ago. Um, that was a very expensive race, a lot of special interest groups, a lot of uh, political action committees got involved in that. So um, I think this is going to be an expensive race because it's it's a competitive one. But um, I'm, I'm completely confident that we can raise the money. I think our filing that's due April 15th will be a very positive filing. I think people will take notice of it. Um, and like I said, I have the full backing of the Republican organization, which in Nassau County is one of the strongest in the United States. Conservative parties behind me, the Independence parties behind me. So I feel uh, I feel very confident that we'll not only raise the funds, but that we'll have the human resources, the the people who are emotionally invested in a change, in putting America back on the right track. So I, I feel very good about it. And we're talking to Bruce Blakeman here on Spin Class, and Bruce Blakeman running in the fourth congressional district on the Republican for the Republican nomination. Is it fair to say at this point that you you have the Independence Party nomination and the Conservative Party nomination, or is there a primary for those as well? There won't be a primary for the Independence Party, but um, I understand that there is an individual that's circulating petitions now for the Republican and Conservative um, uh, ballots. And um, it's someone who's run twice before and lost in the primaries. So we don't take any opponent lightly. I'm out working hard. Uh, I'm going 14 hours a day. Uh, but, again, we're very confident that we'll get all three lines and that we will win in November. Right. And Bruce uh, practiced the age-old adage of never mention your opponent's name. And I, and I admire and appreciate that. And I have to give him props for that but i got to mention it, the gentleman's name who's running is frank scaturo he has run uh three times i believe uh and actually last time i think uh and i'm sure you're on notice of the fact he did manage to wrest the conservative party line from fran becker uh correct so I, i'm sure you won't allow that to happen uh, this we're, you'll be we're, paying not, attention. we're not gonna we're not gonna fall asleep as i said michael we're taking this very very seriously because um, I don't think you should ever take any opponent lightly. Right. Well, no, Bruce, there's no question. I can tell you I've known Bruce for quite some time, and there's nothing he doesn't do uh, when he doesn't do it 100%. So I have to say, you know, and no, no endorsements here at this point, but I will tell you that that much I can tell you that Bruce Blakeman is a, you know, is a serious guy. Uh, let's talk for a second about Israel, or let's talk for a second about you know, foreign affairs as you want, because it, that's a congressional 
issue. It's a federal issue. And the foreign affairs of this administration seem, just seem to be an awful mess, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Syria, whether it's this incredible botching of the Israeli-Palestinian talks this week and the whole Jonathan Pollard mess or whatever. It's just it's just incredible that uh, John Kerry trots around the globe, at least in my humble opinion, and uh, seems to just mess, it, mess up everything he touches. Well, you know what? Um, when you run a foreign policy that is oblivious to the realities of what is really taking place in the world, it's, it's not hard to understand how they would have so many missteps and miscalculations. First of all, let's take Iran. Iran, to me right now, is probably the number one issue uh, with respect to what this country needs to do to make a safer world and what is in our national interest. If Iran gets nuclear weapons capability, first of all, I don't think they need nuclear capability because I don't believe that their nuclear program is for peace. If their nuclear program was for peace, then why would they have to bury their reactors a mile under a mountain so that uh, it was uh, defendable? So uh, basically, I don't believe that it's a peaceful nuclear program. I believe that their intent is to uh, get weapons-grade material and make them operational, and that we cannot let happen. Uh, I had the opportunity to listen to John Bolton this weekend, who I think is brilliant, and also uh, the, um, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, and basically uh, their points are extremely well taken, and that is that we have to do everything that we can to make sure that Iran does not get uh, nuclear capability. With respect to Syria, uh, we have completely created a vacuum there. Uh, when that conflict ends, uh, and uh, it may take years for it to end, what you're going to do is you're going to have various organizations there that uh, are terrorist organizations that are going to be fully uh, armed. Uh, that is a major problem. Uh, there are so many issues whereby the federal government, through the Obama administration and weakness in the United States Senate, uh, have not stepped up to the plate. You know, Ronald Reagan was, in my view, of the last six or seven presidents we had, one of the greatest leaders, because he understood the international landscape, and he understood that weakness invites danger. And what I'm very concerned about is uh, the president uh, is weak. Uh, his foreign policy is is uh, is not um, rational. It's not um, it's not based on the realities of the international community. And uh, I, I think um, Secretary Kerry. Uh, has been completely duped by the Palestinians. And, they, you know, this is an act they've been doing for the last 30 years. They don't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. And that's completely transparent. So, Bruce, I think that it's fair to say that by most political analysts right now, whereas a time, there was a time about, let's say, a you know, even a year ago, as little as a year ago, it was kind of viewed that the Republicans, particularly on the House side, did not have their house in order. 
and uh, you know we're engaging in a lot of intra-party warfare. But it's, they seem to be a much better footing. They they won that special election in the Tampa Bay area and the Pinellas County area, as you mentioned, new Congressman Jolly, and the Republicans seem to be pretty confident right now about m- retaining the House, me- retaining the House of Representatives, uh, at least in this cycle. So they've also seen a lot of Democratic retirements, including Callum McCarthy, although that may you know, may not have happened for medical reasons. Uh, what do you say now to the to the voters is saying, okay, you know, I can be in the majority and I can be part of it. I can get things done. Uh, has that has seemed to work for some reason in for in a lot of New York? Um, you know, maybe parts yes, but New York voters seem to really be trending towards Democrats. So how 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 do you kind of stop that? That that trend that's been kind of existing, uh, you know, throughout New throughout New York State. Well, I think the fourth congressional district is different. Um, the people in the fourth congressional district are very sophisticated. They're highly educated, and they really understand um, national politics and international politics. And in our community, they understand how important it is to have. Uh, a majority that is Republican, a majority that is strong, a majority that believes in America as that shining city on the hill, an America, a a Congress that believes in American exceptionalism. So um, I'm very confident that the people in my congressional district view being in the majority as as an important issue uh, because they understand that it's going to be easier to get things done as a member of the House of Representatives if you're in the majority. So um, I'm confident that, that they will uh, that they will know that, and if they don't, I'll remind them. Well, absolutely. I, I imagine that you will. Uh, what do you what do you plan to – and I, I guess you don't know your Democratic opponent at this time, but if you could kind of prognosticate, which one would you rather run against right now? Uh, Kevon Abrahams? Uh, or Kathleen Rice? You know what? Um, I'm not going to get involved with that, Michael, because I don't have the opportunity to pick my opponents. So um, they both have uh, strengths and weaknesses. And um, basically, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the voters in the 4th Congressional District, it doesn't matter which one of them gets elected. If they get elected, their first vote will be for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker, and I think that speaks volumes. Well, certainly, certainly will for a lot of people. Uh, let's, I guess, just talk. You mentioned your political family. Your brother's uh, very prominent in politics as well. Worked in the White House. A lot of people know him. And you, your name is certainly one that people in in my area still remember. But you know, I have to point out the last time you held office was quite some time ago. So are are enough people reminded of? Bruce Blakeman, or did they rec- they recognize the name, or are there a lot of reintroductions or, or first-time introductions that you feel you have to do? You know, Michael, I-, I agree with you. I think it's a little of both. I think that there are people who remember when I was a legislator, and they remember that in a very positive way. Um, and then there's a lot of new people that have moved into the congressional district, or a lot of people who um, may not remember me. So you know, I think I'm going to have to reintroduce myself in, into the district as a uh, as a candidate and as a potential public official. And um, you do that uh, by going to all the events. And, you know, 
you, you remember me as a tireless worker. That's what I am. Um, I'll be going to, you know, as many events as I can. I'm walking the district almost every day. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I get off the phone today, Michael, I'm going to be uh, walking in the Franklin Square area. And um, it's, it's, it's. You're doing it the old school way. You know, the, the old school way, the shoe leather, you know, banging, banging on the doors, you know, wearing out the shoes and not taking nothing for granted. And yeah, but we're going to mix that in with social media and paid media. So we're going to have a television program. We're going to have a radio program. We're going to have an internet program. And we're also going to do it the good old fashioned way. We're going to wear out a couple of pairs of shoes going door to door and, uh, talking to people and, and finding out what's on their minds and, and giving, you know, them an opportunity to hear why I'm running for, uh, for Congress. We're talking to Bruce Blakeman here on Spin Class. And Bruce, as we wrap up, uh, how important would the Jewish, would you say the Jewish vote is in this election? Uh, you know, we, we try and focus a lot on the, on the Jewish community here on this show and Jewish issues. And, uh, what, you know, as congressional districts go, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a significant part. And what, would you say it's up for grabs? Every constituency is important, Michael, and I don't want to single out anyone, but with respect to the Jewish community and, and the issues that are important to them, they're just as concerned about the economy as any other constituency. They're just as worried about as Obamacare as any other constituency. But when you add in the issues regarding foreign policy and Israel, I think that basically there is no choice. I'm the only choice. Uh, that they know that my work through the years as uh, my work uh, in the Israeli bonds, uh, being man of the year uh, last year for Nassau County Israeli bonds, my work as uh, uh, a vice president on American Jewish Congress, uh, the, the articles that I've written about Israel, um, my trips to Israel, my support for Israel, uh, my, my support is unwavering. Um, and if I can just get a quick plug in, sure. um, BDS to me, um, the, the, that issue, uh, is almost as dangerous, if not as dangerous as terrorism for Israel. They are trying to delegitimize the Israeli state. They are trying to do it in, in, in a way that they pretend to be representing, uh, a, an opinion about human rights that is completely false, and they do it without uh, any regard to all the countries that are accused of things that are a hundred times worse than what Israelis, Israel's biggest critics are complaining about Israel. BDS is something that I am going to continue to fight against because I think it's insidious, I think it's anti-Semitic, and I think that if we allow Israel to be delegitimized, I think that that is very, very dangerous. And I am going to fight as hard as I can against those people who are doing this for anti-Semitic purposes and are trying to uh, destroy the Jewish state, not through war, but through delegitimization. Absolutely. And, you know, we spoke about it actually last week on this show very specifically with regard to the bill in Albany and the fact that there was a anti-BDS bill 
in Albany that was proposed uh, on a state level that would deny funding to groups and organizations in the universities, state funding in that for, were supporting boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And it passed the Senate, and it was on its way to passing in the Assembly, and it's been held up in committee. And we had David Weprin on the uh, on uh, we had David Weprin on the show an assemblyman who promised to go ahead and pass it and it still hasn't passed it's one of those shocking things in albany when the speaker sponsors a bill and it doesn't pass so we're still waiting we're still standing here waiting for that to happen well i i am i am certainly supportive of that and i would sponsor similar legislation in the house of representatives because uh, again i believe that bds is a hate crime i think it's purely based on anti-semitism and singling out Israel when you have other countries like Venezuela, North Korea, Syria, uh, China, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Cuba. You could go up and down the list of countries that are accused of things much more um, against human rights than anything Israel. Israel is a democracy. There is religious freedom, and they respect human rights more so than most of the countries in the world, and why they're being singled out can only be the result of anti-Semitism. Well, Bruce, well said. Bruce Blakeman, a candidate for the Republican nomination, conservative nomination, independence nomination in the 4th Congressional District of Long Island. We look forward to following this race very, very closely as we, get, uh, as we move on in the political season. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, Bruce. Thanks so much, Michael. Always a pleasure. And this is Spin Class, and we're talking politics here, sponsored by BeckermanPR.com. And I'm happy to welcome for the first time Phil Rosen, a national leader of the Republican Jewish Coalition, as well as a member of the board of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, a senior partner in the real estate practice at Wild Gotchel and Mangies. I don't want to go on and on and on. Phil, welcome to Spin Class. Uh, I'm waiting for and a friend of Michael Fragan. Well, that, that goes would, with, uh, that, top it all. That goes without saying, but I appreciate okay. I appreciate that. You know, I'm going to start with that from now on with all okay, the guests. I appreciate that. I, I don't like to prejudice things. You know, people shouldn't necessarily think we're friends. They should, you know, <laughs> they might know you might be a hostile witness. You never. <laughs> so, Phil, we we just had Bruce Blakeman on. Had a great conversation with him with regard to his race for for Congress, and uh, he was in Vegas with you at the RJC meeting. So, more specifically, wanted to get kind of the the congressional preview. This was known as the Adelson primary, but of course there were other heavy hitters in the room, people who fund congr- uh, congressional candidates and presidential candidates. So and, let, let, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, let, let's start with with just what this weekend is all about. They call it the uh, Adelson or Sheldon primary, but the weekend, in my mind, is one of the great cure of efforts in the Jewish world. Um, we had a hundred people the the entire weekend from Thursday until Sunday is all obviously kosher. Um, we had a hundred people at davening on Friday night, a hundred people at davening on Shabbos morning, and a hundred people at davening both Mincha and Marv on on uh, on Shabbos and Motzei Shabbos. So that that is number one. Friday night we had a Shabbos dinner where over three hundred people from the Republican Jewish Coalition. Obviously, a hundred people davening, three hundred people at uh, at uh, the Friday night dinner. It obviously shows that we had two hundred people to be makarov, 
to uh, to to our community and to um, to Judaism to that, become more beautiful. involved. I have to say, Phil, that and that was really left out of a lot of the political commentary right. uh, that well, you read about the weekend. Uh, unfortunately, that's not politics. That's uh, that's Judaism, and that to me is uh, number one. That, that's way ahead of politics. So, so so let's give we'll go with the tagline: putting the Jewish back in, or in, or I'm sorry, highlighting the Jewish. The Jewish. In RJC, if exactly. That's what you want to say exactly but emphasizing the you, Jewish. It's, it's a real amazing cure of effort. We had people from the Colail in Las Vegas come to stay over. We 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 paid for obviously their uh, their hotel rooms just so they would be there for laning for etc. But we had you know it was just magnificent as a uh, as a Jewish event. So that start with that. Wonderful. Uh, Thanks for and thank you for pointing that out. I I really actually do appreciate that. It, it really is important. And and by the way. The the change in the RJC, which is which is an important one, is the fact that um, all RJC events are now 100% kosher. So um, and and would I have, sound too religious if I said Baruch Hashem? No, it sounds great. Okay, um, fantastic. Makes me very happy. So um, that uh, that's an important factor. So let's go to politics because that's uh, well, that's, that's the theme of the two. show. That's, number two, we got to talk about it. Okay, um, so. It, it was a an interesting gathering of um, Republican leadership um, flying out to to Las Vegas, really not for Sheldon alone, um, but for the um, for the you know five six hundred people that were there to hear um, the potential presidential candidates, but also um, a slew of uh, congressional possibilities and. And Senate possibilities. So, you know, in my mind, the presidential aspect to it was important, but um, you know, there was there was a number of other uh, other important uh, people. Now, the the understanding among all of us is that um, you know we're hoping that we we keep the House. We're pretty confident that that will happen. Um, but the Senate, there are. Um, six seats that we need to get in order to turn the tide. And if we're able to turn the tide on the Senate, then what we have is both houses of Congress and we can we can hopefully stop this president from uh from changing the United States of America any further uh in a negative direction. And to me that's um timing wise, chronologically, that's the next important part so electing, you know, uh, people like Bruce Blakeman is crucial, and uh, it's what we have to do. There are a bunch of seats that we can take over in the Senate, and we got to do it. Um, that's number one. Number two, which is the more high-profile part of the of the weekend, and and the biggest part of the weekend in terms of time set aside for this, is we had uh, five. Four or five. I'm just trying to think. Um, strong candidates for uh, the Republican nomination who came to talk to us about the issues, um, and uh, all five of them are very, very strong uh, supporters of Israel, supporters of um, a, uh, a strong Israel, and um, I think they're all very good candidates. Uh, potentially, some I like better than others. 
Well, there was a little bit of a hiccup uh, that's I'm, been widely reported. Okay, go go when ahead. I, when I get to Chris Christie, I'll talk about that. So, well, you haven't named names so far, so I wasn't no, sure. So, why don't we one, name some names? Number one, uh, Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush uh, was at the VIP dinner on on uh, Thursday night, and so only about a uh, hundred people got to hear him speak. Um, Jeb was fabulous. You know, he's he's a terrific. Um, uh, advocate um, for uh, the Republican Party. He was a very strong governor of Florida and very popular. He has the potential to uh, to lead the way to the White House if he gets the nomination. The two great things about him are, in addition to to the to the facts that his policies. Are strongly in support of Israel and strongly in support of a of a of a good economy and and uh, in a, aligned with our interests in uh, in all different ways in foreign policy, economic policy, diplomatic policy, etc. Um, in addition to all of that, um, he has a very strong appeal to the uh, the female population. Um, and he has a very strong appeal to his, to the Hispanic population of the United States. Right, a fluent Spanish speaker as well as with uh, Latino uh, families. Exactly. His wife is Latino, and uh, his in-laws and uh, the entire side of that family. Um, he's a little different or a lot different than uh, than W because, you know, he grew up uh, outside of Texas and has... Um, minimal amounts of Texas in him. So uh, it's it's a different, uh, it's a very different Bush. It was very funny. He gave, at the beginning of his talk, he he discussed an, up, an update on where the family is. First, he started with his father, who's in better health uh, than he was, and his mother. And uh, then he said, okay, let's get to the rest of the family. He said, uh, my brother's doing okay. And he said, uh, and um, and Marvin sends regards. <laughs> that's uh, that's the third brother that uh, that nobody hears about, and he just threw it out there and got the crowd a little bit laughing. So he's um, he's got uh, good personality. He's got a good sense of humor. Um, he's tall. He's good looking, and um, he has great policies as far as we're concerned. I think I think he's a potential and. Um, I think the issue of the Bush name will, uh, will will probably end up being a positive rather than a negative, particularly as the um, the ratings of um, President Obama go down, the popularity ratings of President George W. Bush go up. So uh, I'm hopeful that uh, that he makes the move. So that's that's candidate number one. Uh, candidate number two that I'm going to discuss is Scott Walker. Uh, Scott Walker is uh, the governor of um, of Wisconsin, who um, hit the papers a lot in that uh, he was able to break the union hold um, in Wisconsin and um, and and survive the entire. Uh, AFL-CIO, as well as the... The recall Demo- election uh, exactly. that, they, that they posed against him. Exactly. So, and how was he received? Not, not He probably is not the flu- most fluent in foreign policy. 
No, he was great. He was he great. Was, I was very impressed. Remember that in um, in 2007 was the first time I got to meet Mitt Romney, and remember I was I became very close to him, and um, I was co-chair of his his campaign, both the campaign itself and the finance committee, and I was his advisor on foreign policy. I met him the first time at this RJC conference in 2007. Um, and he knew nothing about foreign policy back then and uh, obviously became um, a bucky in it uh, as as time went on right an expert in it so um, Scott Walker so Scott Walker has potential that's what you God has potential and he knows a lot and he's impressive fantastic uh, um, all right so let's get uh, before I get to Christie let me discuss one other person two other people so uh, John Bolton came, and there's nobody better on foreign policy than than John Bolton, the former um, ambassador to the United Nations. Nobody stronger. Nobody. I'm telling you, I think he he could be um, Jewish in his background because he just feels, eats, and breathes um, Israel and our issues. And I think that uh, there's nobody better. I'm not sure he's going to run for president, but. You know, he just has the potential to be a great leader. Um, then one more before I get to Christy. Um, Kasich from Ohio, very, very good on, on Israel issues, um, has a down-home flavor, and, uh, and he's from Ohio, so middle of the country, very important state. Um, not sure he's going to stay in until the end, but uh, also has tremendous potential. Um, Chris Christie uh, gave a magnificent speech, really, 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 really terrific. And then when he was talking about his trip to Israel and really bragging about the things that he did in Israel, he said that uh, when he got in the helicopter and he flew over the occupied territories um, to get to Jerusalem, uh, da 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 da. Probably not and the right audience to have. Uh, probably not the right audience to have said no, that. No, I I personally think that he left out what many people say is so-called occupied territories, or you know something like that. I I personally think that that's what he meant to say. That he didn't say it in an offensive way, nor does he really believe that they're occupied territories. Um, I think it was a mistake. He admitted that it was a mistake afterwards. Um, I think you know some players in the Jewish scene um, decided that what he did was he committed uh, you know murder of a, of, a, of a large group of people um, and reacted in the same way. I don't believe that's the case. I think it was a mistake, and I think you know somebody in his position shouldn't have done it. Um, but um, I think it's a mistake that. Uh, you just move on. Right, absolutely. Um, that's just my view. Okay, so nobody's throwing him off the uh, presidential bandwagon at this point. Not uh, yet. Okay, I'd say uh, probably the Bridgegate saga is more dangerous to Chris Christie at this point than Much occupied territories. Much more dangerous, and I would... But, but you know, maybe he didn't hit the home run that he was looking for. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Very well said. Uh, so... 
in general, just to wrap up, Phil, and I, because I know you're be mindful of your time during uh, your visit, very it. busy evening. Uh, is was there anything else that stuck out aside from you know with regard to a sense of optimism on the part of the RGC members of singing that was, you know it, it's but it's been a long time since Republicans have been in the White House. Right. It was a terrifically optimistic uh, event, and I think that everybody was very very upbeat. Um, I think, you know, the 2014 election it is is more of a focus than 2016 right now. Um, you know, people are just feeling out. Uh, I think the L.A. Times was the one that said that this is a, a, a early tryout and there are other rounds of the tryout until you get to the team. And uh, this is way too early to to talk about who's going to be the candidate, but um, you know, there are a lot of potentials, and it's a good, it's a good, good place to be. It's a promising field. And uh, Rand Paul did not come, uh, right. so that was one. Uh, Ted Cruz wasn't there, some of the right. other people that thinking about it. So there's a lot to be decided right now, and uh, I hope that you'll keep us updated as things uh, evolve. Over... Anytime. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Phil Rosen, National Leader in the RJC, and uh, other Jewish organizations, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Stay well. Thanks. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics. And we, as we did just mention, uh, Chris Christie, who did not hit that home run, maybe that he was looking for, that little maybe bump that he was looking for post the release of his own report on Bridgegate, or I should say his own lawyer's report. To explain it to us, once again, we have back Zach Fink from Time Water Cable, New York One, YNN, and all those other monikers. Uh, if you guys could just decide on a name, it would be much easier. Zach Fink. Welcome back to Spin Class. First and foremost, $1 million spent on a report from Randy Mastro. We talked about it a little bit last week, but uh, whitewash now that you've seen it, or what are we facing right now? You know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously this was commissioned by the Christie administration. Uh, Randy Mastro has been an ally of his. It's probably not a surprise that they came up with it, but I, I do think on some level this could be a sign of what's to come. I mean, remember, we've been waiting for this federal investigation. We haven't heard much about it. Assuming there's no smoking gun here, meaning no piece of paper, no text message, no email linking Christie's direct knowledge, if we're going solely on what we're hearing, which is that David Wildstein spoke to Christie about this, and there's no recording of that at that September 11th event, there might not be much linking him to that. In other words, this report, while certainly commissioned by the Christie administration, paid for by the Christie administration, not surprising that it didn't come up with much, it might be a harbinger of what's going to come from any kind of independent federal investigation, not to mention the fact that there are some who are making noise about the fact that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark is compromised because a lot of those people worked closely with Christie when he was the U.S. Attorney. So if you had to then look at it, what about all these other ancillary investigations going on that have kind of sprung out of the chinks in the armor of Christie and with regard to inappropriate potential spending of Port Authority money, with regard to investigations, with regard to Sandy money, with regard to inefficiency and inappropriate actions in the Port Authority, in the Port itself, resignation of David Sampson. And at the same time, you also have these other, these five people hanging out there. You don't know what they're going to say. They, meaning David Wildstein, Bridget Ann Kelly, Bill Baroni, David Sampson himself, and who would be that fifth? Hmm, I thought there were five. Okay, we'll go with four. 
What about them? They haven't spoken yet. Well, right. And, and, you know, we haven't heard much from the Select Committee on Investigation. They're actually meeting tomorrow in Trenton, which is this is the, the Joint Legislative Committee. You know, Bridget Kelly and Bill Stepien refused to talk to them, refused to provide any kind of documents, refused to provide emails. So we're, we're waiting on the outcome on that from a judge. Um, but, but basically, they, they have the right to plead the fifth here, right? I mean, the investigative uh, and subpoena power of that committee is really what's being challenged here. And assuming that the ruling doesn't go their way, we may not hear the investigative committee, you know, for the legislature may, may, may not come up with much either. You're right. There are an awful lot of things out there, you know, a lot of issues that are unresolved. It seems like there was a lot of piling on in terms of, you know, different angles people were taking with this story. And I, and I think it's all true. And I think what's done unquestionably is damage Christie's credibility as a national candidate. I mean, she's really taken a couple black eyes on that. But, you know, in, in the very beginning, there was talk of him maybe having to resign over this or perhaps, you know, uh, cer- certainly something more drastic than what we've seen. And, and, and as of now, we, we just don't have it yet. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to find out what the committee is looking to get tomorrow and what direction they're going to take their investigation. But if they don't get cooperation, or they don't get the judge's ruling that Stepien and Bridget have to cooperate with them, I don't know where they go. Right. Well, I want to bring in Aaron Trudler, Aaron Trudler of TNAC, New Jersey, and who is a commentator uh, in the Bergen Jewish Link. He writes a column there. He's also the CEO of Paul Revere Public Relations, involved in a lot of campaigns. And Aaron, there's, it's no secret that Chris Christie has been wildly popular, and I'll say wildly popular because I think it's the case uh, in the Orthodox Jewish community specifically, but he's done very well for a Republican in the Jewish community in general. And uh, would you say, in your opinion right now, uh, number one, give me a characterization of how you think the report is uh, so far, and also what do you think of Christie's current popularity within uh, TNAC and, and beyond? So, Michael, I'll tell you, with regard to the, the Gibson Dud report that Randy Mastro uh, unveiled last week, you know, quite frankly, uh, because of the nature of how it came about, um, in that Chris Christie himself commissioned the report. Uh, obviously, he has uh, deep, long-standing ties to uh, some of the folks who were involved with the Gibson Dud investigation. Yeah, the way I view it, it's glorified window dressing. At the end of the day, the only investigation I think that truly is going to matter is the one being conducted by the federal authorities, and obviously. Only time will tell how that plays out. Um, but 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 while the, this internal investigation uh, did, quote-unquote, clear Chris Christie, I think that there's certainly uh, folks out there who are, who are going to keep digging until they get to the bottom of this and, and, and really ascertain what, in fact, transpired and who knew what when. Uh, in terms of uh, Chris Christie's uh, popularity in the Jewish community, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, Chris Christie, I think, is, is extremely popular within uh, New Jersey's Jewish, Jewish community. Uh, he's a strong proponent of school choice measures uh, that would aid, you know, non-public schools, including yeshivas. Um, his uh, trip to Israel several years ago um, got a lot of good press. I think it engendered a lot of warm feelings within the Jewish community. I mean, in fact, I, you know, several months ago, I was at the OU Advocacy's New Jersey Legislative Breakfast in, in, New Jer- in Bergen County, and, you know, the packed room, there must have been 600-plus people there, Chris Christie walked into the room to speak and address the audience, and everybody jumped to their feet. He got a thunderous ovation. I think that's indicative of the feelings, um, you know, that people generally have for him within the Jewish community. I think he's extremely popular. Um, you know, how exactly the Bridgegate scandal uh, affects our popularity, uh, you know, 
remains to be seen. Uh, obviously, the the issue that you were just discussing uh, previously that that occurred at the uh, at the RJC event obviously comes into play a little bit in that regard. Uh, but overall, I think that people view Chris Christie as a friend of of Israel and a friend of the Jewish community. But Aaron, just a, a follow up question: Loretta Weinberg, who seems to have become Christie's arch nemesis, maybe she was beforehand, but now everybody knows who she is. Uh, although she was a former lieutenant governor candidate. Uh, she is your local state senator uh, for you know your area of Bergen County, including F- Fort Lee. Is is she seeing a a bump up in popularity? Are people taking you know uh, kind of saying, wow, you know, all this time there was somebody willing to speak out against uh, against the evils of of the people who perpetrated B- Bridgegate, or are people just kind of saying enough already at this point? Well, I think I think because of the nature of how this has played out, meaning that it, it's really over a lengthy period of time, uh, there are a lot of moving parts. It's a very fluid situation. So, you know, the average the average person on the street probably does not have a true sense of all of the details and all that's involved with this with this investigation. Obviously, uh, Senator Loretta Weinberg and Assemblyman John Wisniewski, who are co-chairing that state investigative committee that's investigating Bridgegate. Uh, certainly, she's got a boost in her popularity. She was on Meet the Press. I mean, she's really making a number of media appearances um, that, quite frankly, she she um, never could have dreamed of that kind of thing to do previously. <laughs> it, it, it certainly, could set her sights higher than she since she ever imagined. And this is Spin Class. We're talking with Zach Fink of YNN New York One News, Time Warner Cable, as well as Aaron Truther, CEO of Porvir Public Relations. And Zach, back to you for a second. Uh, what? You know, just with regard to the Port Authority, Christie in his mea culpa press conference starts talking about how, well, we got to reform the port. Maybe we'll break it apart. And I think, you know, from my point of view, and, you know, I used to work in government, is that that's just, to me, you know, it might seem to people, wow, what a great idea. It's so dysfunctional, New York, New Jersey, but it's so impractical. So is he kind of throwing something out there that's just so, you know, so that everybody begs him, well, don't do that, please. You know, I mean, what, what what's going on here with that? I mean, I think it's clear, Michael, that they're going to have to do something, right? They, there's going to have to be some kind of change in the structure, the governing structure of the Port, of the Port Authority. Could they do something drastic, like split it apart? I mean, that's very complicated, just given the way that the various projects throughout the region are financed, bonds, long-term bonds, et cetera. It's a tricky, tricky proposition. That said, Governor Cuomo and Governor Christie apparently did discuss during the height of Bridgegate, at some point, Governor Cuomo taking over the renovation of the airport, of Kennedy Airport, so this and LaGuardia. So, so this, this is something that the governor, at least on the New York side, has wanted to do. Remember, the airports are, are by state, technically speaking. They fall under the jurisdiction of the Port Authority. So even if New York wanted to make changes, they really couldn't without the consent of New Jersey. And New Jersey has a bunch of projects. I mean, there was a great piece in The Nation yesterday just about how uh, they were trying to get Port Authority funds on the New Jersey side to pay for the renovation of the Pulaski Skyway. Um, Christie wanted to take the money from the Arc Tunnel, which he canceled. So there, there are regional projects that need to be done that don't always fall under the auspices of the Port Authority, uh, which is limited in scope. And the fact that we've now had these enormous problems within the Port Authority, I think we should look in the next few weeks to there to be some kind of major, major agreement between the two governors on how to go about changing things at the Port Authority. Well, you know, it's funny, Aaron. I would say if my governor was taking $2 billion extra for my projects in my state, I would say, wow, great job, governor. And I would look at the other governor, meaning Cuomo, and say, hey, weren't you watching the store? 
So it's got, from my point of view, aren't people in New Jersey kind of cheering that and saying, wow, Christy, you did a great job for the state here, taking that extra, that extra money? Or are they kind of saying, oh, I can't believe tolls are going up again? Look, I think, I think when, it, when, when push comes to shove, you know, the average person, in terms of some of these issues that you're discussing, they feel the pinch when it affects their pocketbook. So some, if they feel somebody's dipping into their pockets, um, i.e. tolls, and it's something tangible that they can relate to on a daily basis, I think that resonates more than some of these larger, big-dollar projects that, again, may impact the state in a positive way, but the average person on the street really doesn't either understand them uh, or, or really care. It's really, uh, they really focus on their day-to-day activities. So I don't think something of this nature is... is, is uh, you know, it didn't. It didn't score any uh, Christie any new supporters. I don't think it scored him any big points. Uh, I think it's one of those points that just got lost on the on on, on the public. Um, they're focused on on more mundane activities. This is not something that they're really relating to. And in terms of in terms of the the recommendations in the report and and, and you know one of which, like you alluded to, was splitting the port authority. Again, I, I I have a hard time putting much stock into you know some of the uh, recommendations and, and information that emanated from this report. Simply because of the fact that I think that the the authors of the report um, did have some sort of a conflict of interest here, so I take it all with a grain of salt. I don't know that there's going to be any wholesale changes coming down the pike. Um, I, I think it's just something that uh, you know, from Chris Christie's view, I think he needed something like this to give him a boost to get back on the national stage, which I think he's really kind of worked on uh, since his report was unveiled last Thursday. Um, but beyond that, the sub, sub and substance of the report, I think, uh, you know, was somewhat lacking. Well, the, an interesting poll came out yesterday. Monmouth University did a poll, which, you know, it, it can't help but bring a smile to it, right? It's a 61% think that Christie has not been completely honest, and 32% say he has been honest, and the rest obviously don't know. By the same token, 51% say they approve of his job, and 41% disapprove. So you gotta you gotta look at the people who think he's not being honest, but they also approve of the job he's doing. So I'll throw that out to both of you guys. Uh, is it that New Jerseyans just at this point they don't care? They're sick of it. They're saying, okay, you know what? We just assume that all politicians in New Jersey or maybe even elsewhere are just not honest, and so therefore, you know, who cares? Business as usual. Well, I mean. Those are not great numbers. I mean, I, I, I they, you know, keep in mind, Christie's coming from 75,000 feet. I mean, the guy had, had astronomical poll numbers, you know, six months ago. Um, I think you're right. There is a certain amount of fatigue with this. I think people have hit maybe the low point on this, that meaning that it dropped, it dropped, it dropped, and maybe it's going to hover now around 50%, 55%, as opposed to, let's say, 75% or whatever the figure was right before his re-election, where it was really, really very, very high. Um, but I think there's no question that Christie has come out of this damaged. You know, people may be sick of all the details. Maybe MSNBC's beating the drum and talking about this, and there's a group of people out there who want to hear everything and want Christie to keep sliding in this. But at some point, the public moves on, right? And I think Christie, uh, in many senses, wisely sort of had his finger on the pulse of that. It's like, okay, this report... We, we know in the media that it's a bit of a whitewash. We know it doesn't have a lot of credibility, but does every single person out there? No. I'd be willing to bet you a lot of people don't really understand the nuance of that. They see the report. They see somewhat clear. All right, enough already. Let's move on. And Aaron. another interesting point, um, that same poll, Michael, uh, when, they were, when, people were, when they were asked about um, uh, Governor Chris Christie's political future, i.e. the 2016 presidential race, 
you know, 62% of the people polled said that they think the Bridgegate uh, scandal hurt his chances of becoming president. And you're talking about a guy that's, like you said, wildly popular in, in the state of New Jersey. I mean, this is a you know, red governor who won big in a blue state. And um, as Zach correctly said, his, his poll numbers prior to the uh, scandal breaking were, were just through the roof. And although they've kind of stabilized a little bit, you know, around the 50, 51 percent range, again, it's nowhere near where he had been at the, at the pinnacle of his career. So definitely taking a hit on this, on this scandal. But, uh, you know, if, if, if the numbers kind of stabilize at this point and start kind of moving upwards ever so slightly, um, you know, we're going to see what kind of a, a real warrior Chris Christie is and how much he can persevere and, and really survive the scandal. And uh, you know, if he's able to do that and if he's able to successfully uh, re-inject himself into the, uh, the national spotlight, you know, this is a guy that, that comes across as uh, a likable guy among the, you know, the average Joe on the street. This is a guy that people feel they can relate to. He, he, he speaks his mind. He says it like it is. And... Uh, people find that very refreshing, and that's that's what endeared him to so many people within the state of New Jersey and enabled him to score that historic victory on Election Day. Well, Zach, let me throw out a question. Uh, I guess I'll make it as kind of a two-part question. Is I'm kind of wondering, if this had happened a year ago, meaning, uh, you know, as, would Chris Christie be reelected? And at the same time, do you think that he will have an exceedingly difficult time Facing the legislature and the you know in the session the budget dance and going forward. Um, go ahead. It's a, yeah, it's a very intriguing question. I mean, I, I mean, one one could fairly argue that if this had happened a year ago, the Democrats would not have come up with Barbara Bono as the candidate, right? They would have seen a real opportunity here. There would have potentially been national money. There would have suddenly been a much better effort to recruit a candidate who has a better brand. Uh, I certainly think there would have been an effort to. Uh, you know, get Cory Booker on the ticket as opposed to, to Barbara Bono. Um, you know, that being said, it, it, it happened when it did, and it, and you know, it, Christie is now in a, in a position where he has really two years, right, to build up his, his his national credentials once again. Can he get to where he was? I sincerely doubt it. Uh, but could he maybe get to a place where he could credibly, you know, as Aaron points out, I mean, this is a very likable guy. People like him. He's the head of the Republican Governors Association. There doesn't seem to be any sign that his colleagues, you know, at the Governors Association, meaning the other Republican governors, think he needs to resign over this. So, you know, it's tough to say. I mean, I, you, you, you know, he's he's definitely recovered from the low he was, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, and, and it just remains to be seen how well he'll bounce back, you know, in New Jersey and nationally. And Aaron, did Barbara Buono not do enough opposition research on on Christie with all this uh, all this fodder that's coming up? Well, clearly not, and I think again. I mean, uh, I think she tried hard, but no matter what she what she did and whatever she tried, uh, whatever rabbit she tried to pull out of her hat, none of it resonated with anybody. Um, and you know, even there was a lot of murmurings during that during that campaign um, where you had Democrats openly supporting Chris Christie, and you know, people were were kind of you know Barbara Bono in particular were questioning how they can forsake the Democratic Party. I think it's because they they didn't put up a candidate that was. Uh, that had the wherewithal to be Christie. And in terms of her oppo research, uh, whoever, whoever was handling that for her clearly missed a golden opportunity because this is uh, this is something um, right. This you know that this, really should have surfaced. I mean, this is this, this happened no before the election. Correct. This happened in September, and in fact, it was again not to the extent it's been reported on. You know, it was written months, about, but it was it was written about. Exactly. And, and to not pick up on that, I think they really missed the boat.
Well, very good. Uh, Aaron Trudler, Zach Fink, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. We'll have you on again soon. Okay, this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckman PR, and it's closing out with our knucklehead of the week, and I'm going to award that to Bill Bratton, the current commissioner of police for the city of New York, who went ahead and uh, attacked his longtime rival and predecessor, Ray Kelly, who talked. He said that it was morale was absolutely awful at the police department because of being beat down for – beaten up by the political establishment and the press over stop and frisk. Well, guess what? Who was the person beating them up over stop and frisk? It was none other than the current mayor, Bill de Blasio. That's fair. It's good politics. However, to kind of criticize your predecessor for that because your current boss uh, beat him up, that's not classy. And I have to say, Ray Kelly, class act for not responding. Bill Bratton, you have earned our knucklehead of the week. And this has been class and we will speak to you next week. Another great night of political talk in the books here on the Nachum Siegel Network.